Again, as has been spoken a couple times today, today is Gaudete Sunday, which is the Sunday of joy. And as we read through the prophet Zephaniah this morning, we, we find that quite obvious. As Zephaniah says, O daughter of Jerusalem, shout for joy, sing joyfully, O Israel. And even in Philippians, as it begins, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. But then we get to this gospel reading, and there seems to be a complete and utter lack of joy. I don't know if you noticed that. In fact, it, it seems a very strange gospel reading for the Sunday of joy, coming from Luke 3. And we're continuing where we left off last week. Last week, John was uh, being foretold as the one prophesied in Isaiah, who would lay straight the path for the way of the Lord, so that all could see the salvation of God. And today we continue that, where we jump into the text, and it says, what should we do? The crowds ask him, what should we do? But we must understand where that question comes from. A couple verses prior, John is preaching to the people, and in response to what they hear, they're asking this question, what should we do? And this is what John said to the crowds. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. There seems to be still a lack of joy. You brood of vipers. And it's interesting here, there's actually this parallel between the children of the viper or the serpents and the children of Abraham, which you can trace all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the promise to Eve and Adam about your offspring shall crush the offspring of the serpent. So John continues then, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John preached the good news. This is a hard word. A word of judgment. But in the middle of this word of judgment to the people, John offers this phrase, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is, is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance, John came for a baptism of repentance. Repentance is turning away from our sinful ways. It's having Christ come in and purge that darkness within us. And what happens is when that darkness is purged, and I've seen this so often in the lives of others and even myself, what's interesting, it leaves a hole. It leaves something that desires to be filled. And usually a short time after asking forgiveness and a short time after turning from our sinful ways, we fill that hole once again with the darkness. We fall back into the same trap. And so these people, these crowds who have gathered are earnestly asking John, looking for help, and they ask, what shall we do? We heard the judgment you have preached, this call to bear fruit. So what should we do? They desire to live a new life. They want to know what this looks like. And so John shares with them what this life of repentance should mean for them. To the crowds, to the tax collectors, and to the soldiers. All asking the same question. And John seems to offer a a new twist or a new understanding of the law, which is really not new. We see it in the Old Testament is this idea of love your neighbor. John calls them to deeds of mercy, and John calls them to reject the attachment they have to worldly things. 
to the crowds. He says, share your tunic, share your cloak. Share your food to those who are in need. And not because they have abundance, but because they have something someone else doesn't. And God has been generous to you, so be generous to others. To the tax collectors, he says, be honest in your collection. Typically, tax collectors would skim off the top. That was a perk, if you may, of the job. You would collect your taxes, but you would increase it a little bit more, and then you could live comfortably. To the soldiers, he tells them, don't extort. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your wages. He's saying, don't use that authority you have over other people and abuse it. Don't take advantage of those you've been placed in authority over. What fascinates me is John does not tell them to run from their life to the desert, to the wilderness, and live like him. He doesn't. He tells them to go back home and live out this repentance in their everyday life, in the lives they were already living. The fruit of repentance does, does not look like some radical isolationism. It's living out the gospel we have received and the lives God has given us. And that is what it means and that is what it looks like to be called a true child of Abraham. And they are so astonished by the wisdom and power with which John preaches and proclaims this word that it says they they wonder to themselves if he is the Messiah, the one who was to come to reign over all. And John has an interesting opportunity here to elevate himself. John could say, yes, it is I. He could. As others had. In years prior. John could have taken that moment to receive all the glory for himself. But he refuses. Instead he responds humbly. I baptize with water but one mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm not even worthy to bend low and untie his sandals. John is preparing the people to receive Jesus. Not himself, not to glorify himself, but to be able to glorify God. And this continues on even as he goes to prison and he tells his disciples to go and see if Jesus is the one who has come. If Jesus is the one he was preparing the way for. John becomes less so that the Christ, our Lord Jesus, may become more. So that all may see him. And he ties it then together with this, this metaphor, this parable of a threshing floor. When you, when you gather your wheat into the barn, you take a pitchfork and you throw it up into the air. And you have a fan running and the fan will blow all the chaff away. And then that's all the, the, the refuse, the stuff you don't want. And then the wheat, the kernel, the, the part that is the fruit of the wheat, will fall to the ground. And now you have all your wheat and all the garbage, all the worthless stuff is, is thrown out and and burned. And this is this image that, that John gives. That the one who is coming is going to bear judgment. And for that which is worthless, it will be thrown into the fire. But for that which is the fruit, which bears fruit, it will fall down and be stored. It will be a great gift. So John's whole preaching begins with, judgment is coming, you brood of vipers. 
This is what it looks like to bear fruit. And don't forget, in case you did, judgment is coming, you brood of vipers. But it's in that middle that we find our hope. The Messiah is coming. So in bearing fruit, we prepare for his coming and receive his great gifts or his grace. But it's not a cheap grace. Luther would talk about, uh, about this often, as Ed would many others, this idea of cheap grace. I have Jesus, I've been forgiven, now I can do whatever I want. Paul himself writes about this. Should I sin all the more that grace may increase? If I get grace when I sin, should I sin so I get grace? He says, by no means. Stop. But on the other end, it's easy to turn this into a simple moralism. But if we do that, we also miss the point. If we think to ourselves this advice to the crowds and the tax collectors and the the soldiers is so that they can impress God, so that they can back pay what they've received, so that they could make right what God has already done for them, then we miss the point. Because what God gives us is greater than anything we have the ability to pay back or to pay even in the first place. To, to treat this as a simple moralism would be as if John says to them, give your tunic and give your food away or else. Stop skimming off the top or else. He'll get you. That is not what John is saying. The bearing fruit is a response to the forgiveness we have received. And in doing so, it's not out of obligation to make up for it. But a heart filled with joy giving thanks for it. This is where the joy is found. That a response can only happen with joy. If we serve those in need, And don't take advantage of the position of authority we have been given. And don't take advantage of those who are under our authority. And don't be dishonest and hurt and and take and steal for ourselves. If, If we only do kind things in order to make God happy, are we not still using people for our own means? No, we do this with joy. For what God has put within us And what God has given us. Have you ever met an addict who has been sober for years? Have you ever met an addict sober for years and talked to them about it? They have joy. They don't say, I really wish I was back enslaved to my addiction. Do they? They find joy. They find freedom. This is what we are called to in Christ. Because it's not just addiction. All sin is an enslavement to us. So whatever it may be, whatever darkness has filled our hearts, whatever sin we feel so consumed by, that we offer it to Christ to be forgiveness and find joy in that place. To be able to thank Jesus with a joyful heart that he has freed us from the cycle of sin and from hurt and pain and suffering that we often cause ourselves from death and Satan's grasp upon us. We have joy. We have joy because we know when we fall back into it, again, he's still there. We know when we fall back into the darkness that we so swore off, that he still loves us and forgives us and comes to us again and again and again without exhaustion. We have joy because this freedom can only come in Jesus. 
And so John becomes less, so Jesus may become more. John lowers himself so that Jesus may be lifted up to be glorified. Even glorified on a cross for all to see. We preach Christ crucified. Grace was never cheap. It cost his life. The life of the only Son of God, his blood. That even today we get to take and receive for our own life. This is the good news Jesus preaches. That John preached. Judgment must be preached to make us aware of our sin. And right on the heels comes the mercy of Christ. This is the joy we heard in the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord, be glad and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed judgment against you. Did you hear? The Lord has removed judgment against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You have no further misfortune to fear. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty Savior. He will rejoice over you with gladness and renew you in his love. He will sing joyfully because of you as one sings at festivals. And so at the end of this celebration, this Joy Sunday, I think what's most profound is not just our own joy at what God has done for us. But what struck me this week is that God finds joy in you. The Pharisees find plenty of joy in themselves. They're self-righteous. But the sinner who could never believe anyone would love them or find joy in them to us who are forgiven, he finds joy in us us. He rejoices over us. He sings joyfully over us. The Lord and the heavenly choir sing for the the repentance and the forgiveness of a single lost sinner. Brothers and sisters, the Lord finds joy in you. He delights in you. And we only have to receive these gifts that come from his hand and can only come from the hand of God. So today, as we find joy, know the Lord finds joy in you, a sinner once lost, now found, once enslaved and now free. And even as we receive this meal to understand the one true promise he offers to us and says to each of us, child of God, your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.